Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to James chapter 2. As you're doing that, let me just say, uh, my wife got to go, was at the hospital, and we stayed home, and early, uh, late Friday night, she was induced, uh, and she gave birth today, and my daughter, who's at home that you know, Andrea, um, started having a sore throat, and then got a fever, and is now pretty sick, and I share that with you so you could pray for her, but also because uh, about 20 minutes there, I started getting a sore throat. So I'm praying that I will, it's just from yelling a lot when I preach, and it's not from having, being sick, but I'm not going to shake hands just in case after the service, and I can't go see the baby either until I've been cleared by the mother. James chapter 2, and verses 8 to 13, hear now the word of the Lord. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Forever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak. And so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For the judgment, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Holy Spirit, we ask now that you would uh, speak to our hearts as we hear your word, your law, spoken to us in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we've looked at this letter of James, which we've mentioned is uh, most likely was a sermon um, or a group of sermons that were put together, he put in a letter, Uh, we've seen that he has this great concern for the body of Christ, those who claim to have faith in Jesus, those who claim to be believers in Christ, those who call themselves Christians, he's concerned that those claims are not in word only. That it's just not outward. He says that we must be doers and not just hearers and receivers of the word. He said that we must bridle our tongue. We must care for the needy. We must keep ourselves unstained from the world. And he also shared that we must not show favoritism by giving special honor to the rich and shunning the poor. He said, look, these are tests of acceptable religion. These are tests of true biblical faith. And see, that last point, that we do not show favoritism, is actually the context for this section of the Scripture as well. Last week in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, James taught us that faith and partiality, faith and favoritism are uh, not compatible that if we show favoritism, it's, a, it's literally a denial of the faith we claim. And remember, he illustrated this for us by explaining how some churches at his time were showing favoritism to the rich over the poor. And I, I mentioned then, I want to mention again, that that was simply an illustration. James wasn't saying all the rich are terrible and all the poor are wonderful. He was given an example, an example, an example of the principle 
an example of the principle that he's going to lay out now this morning in our passage. Look at verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself. You are doing well. Now, in the New American Standard Translation, it kind of gets a little bit closer to what he's getting at. It adds the word, however. And then NASB, if you have one, it says, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, you are doing well. That's the idea. One commentator says, the word, however, turns our attention away from the illustration of the rich man and the poor man, and now draws our attention to the principle, the main principle, fulfilling the royal law. And so you could summarize it this way. You cannot show favoritism no matter who you are showing it to, and at the same time love your neighbor as yourself. You can't do both. Favoritism is is really the polar opposite of loving your neighbor, it's the polar opposite of caring for the needy. And so see, James is getting at it, it all comes down to this. Do you have a master, do you have a king who can issue to you commands that you must obey? Is that true of you? And if the answer is yes, then you must not show favoritism. You instead must fulfill the royal law, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the first thing I want you to recognize here is what James is teaching here is that you're still under the law. You are still obligated to keep the moral law of God. The command to love your neighbor as yourself, it goes back before James, goes back before Jesus, and goes all the way back to Leviticus 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It goes all the way back to Leviticus. And what's interesting about that is just a few verses before that in Leviticus, we read, do not pervert justice, do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. The context of the law given to Moses in the Old Testament is the same here in James, showing favoritism, showing partiality. And so the context and the command are the same. And so we are obligated to keep uh, the, the same moral laws that were given to Moses. Remember, we said already in this series that the moral law is an expression of God's character. And so to say, well, I don't have to keep the moral law of God is to say that there's something about his character I don't have to follow. And we know that to be foolishness, that you can get along without it. It's just not true. And so the law is given as your guide to holy living. Now, understand, we're not saying that Uh, that you're to keep the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. We're talking about the moral law here. Um, And it's true that the law does serve several purposes. In fact, it serves three purposes. First, it it points us to Christ. How does that work? Well, the law functions, I think I mentioned this in an earlier sermon, the law functions the same way a mirror functions. We look in the mirror and we see our, our blemishes, we see the things we need to fix, we see our imperfections, and that's what God's law does for us. We, we look in the mirror of the law and we see that we're not perfect, and, and we're not going to find the answer in the mirror, 
and we're not going to find the answer in the law. So it drives us outside of ourselves so that we realize I fall short, and so I need to find salvation apart from the law. I need to find it in Christ. Well, that's one of the purposes. It drives us away from ourselves, thinking we can save ourselves to Christ. Another is a civil purpose. It's to restrain evil. The law can't change our heart. It reveals our heart, but it can't change our heart. But that said, some people just don't commit a crime because they don't want the punishment. And so it restrains evil. The fear of punishment keeps us from breaking the law. That's one purpose of the law. Another is this, and that's the third use. That's the one we're looking at here. It's a guide for us on what God expects from us. It's a guide to holy living. You are to be holy as God is holy. And the law reveals his standard of holiness. You know that book, Leviticus, that you skip when you're doing your Bible reading throughout the year? That, that book really reveals the holiness of God and how to live a holy life. It's revealing the law, the holiness of God. And see, here's the good news. As believers living this side of the resurrection and, and, and as believers living this side of the coming of the Holy Spirit, it, it's no longer an external law anymore. It has been written on our hearts by the Spirit. We've been given the ability to obey this law. We won't obey perfectly. We know that. Scripture bears that out. But we've been given the ability to conform our lives according to the law. And so that's God's pattern. The law drives you outside of yourself, so you seek justification apart from the law, which then leads, as you get saved, to obedience to the law. We are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, by the blood of Christ, by grace through faith. And now we're to respond because we've been united to Jesus. Now we're to respond because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling us with this empowered, joyful obedience out of love for Christ. Having been saved by Christ, now we long to be like Christ. And to conform more and more into his image. That's what James's point is. That's what it's been throughout. You can claim to have true religion. You can claim to have a, a, a true faith. Well, then if you do, you must be conforming to the image of Jesus. If you see after you supposedly believed, or if you can't remember the day of your belief, that's not necessary to be able to give a date, but if you could say, I grew up in a church, and, and I hear this stuff about Jesus, but to be honest, nothing's changed. I'm really no different than anyone else in the world. Well, then what you need to realize is that it's unlikely that you have true saving faith. It's not a judgment. Well, it is a judgment, but it's not my way of judging you. It's my way of saying, repent and believe, and you can be saved. But if you don't see the fact that you're conforming to Christ well, then it's unlikely that you found true religion. And this is why James calls you to obey the royal law and expects you to do it. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. And in our passage, James contrasts those who fulfill that law, uh, the royal law of loving your neighbor as yourself, with those who show partiality. That's the contrast. Those who love their neighbor as yourself and those who show partiality. Those who fulfill the law are doing well, says verse 8. 
He is not saying and claiming, well, there are some people out there that are completely keeping that law perfectly. He's saying those are people who are pursuing that and, and, and loving their neighbor. And then there are those who show partiality, and those people are committing sin on our, and are transgressors of the law. That's verse 9. Fulfilling the royal law. Look at the first half. Notice it's a royal law. What's a royal law? A royal law is the law belonging to the king. That's its meaning. It's a perfect fit for every citizen of the kingdom of Christ. It comes with the special stamp of the king. As I said above, Moses mentions we are to love our neighbors ourselves. This is nothing new, but King Jesus takes that command, takes that law, and brings it to its pinnacle. It's what Jesus says, yes, but it's also the way he lives. He both speaks and he both acts love. That's the point, and he does it perfectly. See, Jesus became our neighbor by becoming man. And he met our need by sacrificing himself on the cross and raising from the dead. And, and, and that is the extent of his love for us. He took action. Love, love is not defined in sentimental terms. It's a verb, love. It, 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 it is something we display by our actions. It's not saying that feelings are wrong. I mean, a relationship with your spouse wouldn't go too well if you were just a robot and able to do everything you were supposed to do and, 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 and not show emotional love, uh, sentimental love in that sense. But that is not what drives us to love. That is not what we're waiting for is that if we had to sit back, I would show love. And I've had somebody say this to me. I, you know, I, I want to love, but I'm just not feeling it yet. It does not matter what you're feeling. Uh, uh, C.S. Lewis said that we can love someone even when we don't like them because it's an action. It's caring terms. It's a verb. It's something we display. Feelings of love are not wrong. They are helpful, but they're not what we're talking about here. We're talking about choosing to love. And so James is calling every believer to follow our Savior, to take up our cross, as it were. And whenever our neighbor has a need that we can meet, to meet that need. That's the call. And it raises a few questions. The first is this. Who is our neighbor? Well, we know, we know the scripture. We know Jesus answered that one. In the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, Jesus defines for us who our neighbor is. And our neighbor is any needy human that God gives us an opportunity to help. Any needy human that God gives us an opportunity to help. Which raises the second question. Since there are so many needy people out there and it's impossible for me to meet all their needs, what am I to do? How do I choose? Well, I was thinking about that question and I came across these three guidelines from someone that said that these would be helpful. So I, and I read them and I think they're helpful. First is to know your calling. You can't meet everyone's need. You just can't. But God has called you to meet someone's need. And so know where he has called you. Maybe he's called you at work to meet someone's need. Maybe it's in your family. Maybe in your neighborhood. Maybe it's across the globe that you have a heart for. Know your gifts. Know your abilities. And pray and ask him to reveal how can I help and where can I help. And then second, have respect for the callings of others. God may have called you to meet the needs of the homeless 
in the third world, but it doesn't mean he has called your brother and sister in Christ to do the same. And so what's the point? The author said, concern yourself with your own calling instead of judging others for not fulfilling your calling. But then he balances it out. He said, get involved in one another's callings. It seems like a contradiction. It's not. Knowing your limitation is good, but you don't have an attitude that God doesn't, oh, God hasn't called me to the inner city, so who cares about the inner city? God has called one of your brothers and sisters to the inner city, and so how can you be involved in that in some way maybe? Uh, but, but you can't just write it off. Know your calling. Respect the calling of others. And get involved and rejoice in how God has used different people in different places to care for and love their neighbor. It's a practical way of looking at it. And so, that, that we learn. Well, now we move on. We learn how we are to love our neighbor. We're called to love our neighbor. We decided we know who our neighbor is now. We got some practical understanding of how to do that. Um, how are we to love our neighbor as yourself? That's how you love them. Now, this has produced uh, all kinds of crazy, crazy things when it comes to what it means to love yourself. You can go to a bookstore, and you'll see there's whole sections on self-love. That is not what he's saying here. Um, Paul condemns people who are lovers of self. Uh, rather, how do we love ourselves? Think about it. We, we care. We have concern for ourselves. We care for ourselves. And we give attention to ourselves. We have care, concern, and attention. And that's how we're to love our neighbor. We're to identify with their need. And, and so we, we show concern. And, and then we immediately show care uh, by, by helping in some way, giving them attention, uh, the needy attention. We'll want the best for them. That's the way we love them. Why would we want the best for them? That's what we want for ourselves. We always want the best for ourselves. Uh, that is the idea. And James says, look, if that's what you're doing, if you're out there and you see someone's need and you, and you give them the attention they deserve and need and the care and, and, and then you provide for them, James is saying, you're doing well. You're doing well. Or another translation, you're doing excellently. You're going beyond merely the world's standard of loving and you're loving like your heavenly Father and our Savior, Jesus. And, and see, that is in contrast with those who show favoritism. You see, not only are they guilty of the sin of partiality, they are guilty of breaking the whole law. Look at verses 9 and 10. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Forever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become accountable for it all. Now, this is a pretty profound point that I, I think we need to remember. You may think partiality is a little sin. Eh, you know, I had to choose between two needy people, and I showed partiality. I, I chose one. That's true. It's a little sin. But according to James, there's no little sins here. You cannot pick and choose which laws you want to keep and which you will break. It's an all-or-nothing deal here. At break one, he says, you broke them all. They're all broken. One preacher said, James sees the law as a seamless garment. When ripped in one place, it tears the whole garment. And that's James' point in verse 11. 
He says this, do not, for he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Notice he didn't say you have become a transgressor of the commandment. He said you, you've become a transgressor of the law. What's the idea? The whole law, you've broken it all. Both of these laws, adultery and murder, were punishable by death. Now, maybe you, you have said, and, and I'm sure we think this if, if we don't say it out loud, at least I didn't do that. You know, at least I didn't murder. At least I didn't cheat on my spouse and murder and adultery. But the truth is, as you stand before the tribunal of God, he will say, yes, you did. When you broke one of my commands, you became guilty of breaking all of them. And that's before the tribunal of God. It's not like, well, I lied one day, so let me just go out and murder. It's all the same. That's not the point. This is before God. And therefore, what's the verdict? Well, if you're guilty of one and you broke them all, and some of the laws are, 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 are commend, commended by death, or, or the command is to kill, and you kill, and then you are to what? You're to be eternal death. And so, you see, by committing the sin of favoritism, you become guilty of breaking the whole law. You may be busy, and you may be working on keeping that one area, but if you're neglecting another, you're guilty of it all. And so you are deserving of death. See, what James wants you to feel is the weight of this. He wants you to feel the weight of this, that you must keep the whole law. See, now what we're doing is moving to the other purpose of the law, to drive you to Christ. He wants you to see what is necessary. Do you see how foolish it is to think that on the last day, when you're standing before a holy God, that you can say to him, I wasn't too bad. I, 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 I tried my best. At least I didn't sin like that person. I didn't transgress your law like that person. But as far as God is concerned, you have. That's the point. See, if all you have to offer Almighty God on the day of judgment, when you stand before Him, all you have to offer King and Judge Jesus on the day of judgment is, I tried my best. Understand, your best just ain't good enough. It just, it's not good enough. What is God looking for? Perfection in all aspects of the law. He doesn't grade on a curve, God. He judges based on the standard of the royal law. And so if you stand before God, if I stand before God and am judged by the standard of, of perfectly keeping the law, what is going to happen? I, you, we all are going to be condemned. Death is what you deserve that is justice, and that is what you will receive. There is no hope for you. Understand this. Please understand this. There is no hope for you at judgment if you stand before King Jesus and all you say is, I kept a few of the laws occasionally, and I was pretty good. Just showing favoritism once. Do you think you have? If you ever lied, you're a liar. Have you ever looked at someone in the wrong way and been angry? 
If you drove on 76, you have felt that. (laughs) You have broken the law, and it's deserving of death. Uh, Just showing favoritism once is enough to do you in, to condemn you. Look at verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. What's he mean? Well, Jesus illustrates this for us. We know in the unmerciful servant, Matthew 18, a master forgave one of his servants his debt. It was a great debt. He forgave him. But then that same servant went home and wouldn't forgive the small debt of of somebody who owed him uh, uh, some money. And then Jesus tells the parable, then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant. He said, I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each one of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. The point isn't that, well, you know, our mercy to someone merits God's mercy. The point goes back to what we've been saying the whole time. The point is that when I show mercy, I'm giving evidence to the fact that I belong to Christ who has shown me mercy. And so, if you fail at one level, you are guilty, and judgment is coming. And in light of this, what is our hope of being saved? I mean, we're all condemned. We all show favoritism. What is our hope? Well, the answer uh, James gives us is found in verse 12. And interesting enough, he points us back to the law, the law of liberty. Look at verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Now, what is the law of liberty? Legan Duncan says, ultimately, um, you will be judged by works. Uh, but, but really, their Christ's works is where the judgment will fall. See, you will be judged according to Christ's works. You will be accepted according to Christ's works, and you'll be declared righteous according to Christ's works. See, when you stand before the throne as a Christian, God looks to Jesus And you were invited into the kingdom of heaven because of Christ's works. That's the law of liberty. That's what is meant at the end of verse 13 when he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. We deserve God's judgment, but we receive his mercy. We deserve condemnation, but as Romans 8 says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We deserve death, but we receive life. All and only because of what Christ has done for us. And so do you see that respect is done to God's justice because sin has to be paid for, but mercy triumphs. Now, the law of liberty, it's really the same as what Paul says in Romans 8.2 when he talks about the law of spirit of life. You know the verses in Romans 8. Therefore, there's no condemnation. One of our favorite verses, it should be one of yours. You should have it memorized. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But then Paul goes on to say, why? Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. We have been set free from the law's condemnation through the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Christ. That's the law of liberty, uh, the law of the spirit of life. All that Jesus accomplished, he accomplished as our substitute. And so on the day of judgment, I have nothing to fear. 
if I belong to Jesus. You have nothing to fear if you belong to Jesus. Why? Because mercy will win. Mercy wins. One writer poetically put it, justice looks at what we deserve, which is what? Death and hell. Mercy looks at what we need, which is forgiveness and life. And God looks to Christ where mercy and justice meet. And that's the answer. Therefore, mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, that's at the judgment. That's what will happen on the day when we all face God. What about now? How are we to live now? Well, James tells us that in verse 12. In light of all that's been said, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Speak and act like a person who deserved God's wrath and received his grace. You are to speak and act like a slave who was graciously liberated from his bondage to sin and his bondage to Satan. Speak and act like a poor, needy, and wretched sinner who had nothing to offer and in return received the riches of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You're to speak and act as one who now recognizes because you've been united to Christ, because you've been set free uh, from your bondage to sin, that favoritism has absolutely Absolutely no place in the Christian life. That's how serious this is. The context. Think of the magnitude of your salvation, the mercy you were shown. And in that context, he says, let me remind you of something. Do not show favoritism. Do not show favoritism. See, if you see yourself in this way, you, shouldn't it affect how you view other people? That relationship you have with Christ, how undeserving it is, how much mercy he poured upon you, how much need you had that he met, shouldn't it affect how you view other people? Doesn't the love of Christ for us compel us? Doesn't doesn't the cross of Jesus Christ dying for your sin compel you to say, I must love my neighbor? It's as if the cross has placard above it, love your neighbor as yourself. And and, and so, love the hurting, love the needy, love the poor, love the oppressed, love those who are different than you, love those who make you uncomfortable, those who are unfortunate or are less fortunate than you. Love your neighbor, again, even if you don't like them. Love them. Obey the royal law. And remember this. It's God's law, so you must obey it. It, 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 It's it's our Savior and King's law, so we should want to obey it. And it's also the law of liberty, and so we can obey it. See, far from the law, putting us in bondage, as everybody talks about, uh, obeying the law is the only way to be free, to live the way God created us to live, to live like Christ. And so I have no hesitancy to point to you, the believer, the believer, and say uh, that, that you are to follow the law as your rule of life. Everyone here wants real freedom. And conforming to God's law gives you that. It does more than just describe the life of liberty. Obedience to it liberates. And the joy is that when we fall short, 
We had a Savior who fulfilled it for us. Well, in closing, let's imagine how attractive the church of Christ would be, how attractive St. Stephen would be to the world if we actually put it into practice. Imagine if we here all strive together and in the power of the Holy Spirit and to keep the royal law. If we strive together to say we're going to go out of our way to, to, to show no favoritism. If we strive together to love our neighbor as ourselves. Imagine if we were passionate about not only speaking the truth, but, but living the truth. Speaking the truth in love, as Paul commands. If we had this single-mindedness around this topic and a desire to show concern and care and attention to the needy. See, I believe if we were to do that, if we did that, like those in the book of Acts when it happened, we turned the world upside down. I mean, that's exciting, an exciting vision for us. Well, I said I was closing, so let me close with the story. Ken Hughes in his sermon on these verses tells the story of this miraculous transformation that took place among the outlier prisoners in Japanese concentration camp in 1943. A year before that, 1942, the camp was all mud and filth. It was a scene of grueling labor and, and brutal treatment by the Japanese guards. There was hardly any food. And the law that pervaded the whole camp was the law of the jungle, survival of the fittest. Every man for himself, that's how it was. It's the only way to survive. Well, 12 months later, the ground of the camp was cleared and clean. The bamboo bed slats had been debugged. The huts were rebuilt. And on Christmas morning, 2,000 men were at worship. What happened? Well, during the year, a prisoner uh, who, who was starving himself shared his last crumb of bread with another man who was also desperate. And then the generous man died. Well, among his belongings, they found the Bible. And, and those who witnessed this man's act of love, giving up his last crumb, said maybe the answer to why he would do something like that is found in this book. And that was why he would sacrifice himself even to death. And so one by one, they began reading the book, and one by one, they began getting saved. And the Spirit began, began to grip their hearts and change their lives. In a period in less than 12 months, there was a spiritual and, and, and moral revolution. There was a revival in the camp. See, that was the royal law lived out. And that royal law lived out in those conditions and in that place caused people to say, how? How could this be? How could this person be like this? And then they turned to the scriptures and they found in there the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so do you see, beloved, if one man, one man can make such a difference, imagine if we here today did the same. And so here's the charge to us. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty and pray that God will be merciful to us and grant us the same revolution and revival that that story tells us about. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we ask for mercy. We know that our actions in disobeying your law smear your name. Forgive us in Christ. Drive us to him. Fill us with your spirit that enable us to obey, that we may glorify you in this community, even around the world, as we demonstrate love. In Christ's name, amen.